Now entering Nerdist.com. Hey everyone, this is Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the Nerdist Writers Panel. I myself am a television writer, having written for such shows as Supernatural, Nickelodeon's Super Ninjas, and I'm currently working for the DreamWorks program Puss in Boots, which is available right now via Netflix. Uh, Check it out. It's pretty fun. I am also the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour, a stage show in the style of old-time radio uh, that is available as a podcast here on the Nerdist Network. For information about the Thrilling Adventure Hour, go to thrillingadventurehour.com. So excited about today's very special episode, uh, and I have a lot of people to thank for helping me to put it together. This is indeed uh, the Friends Room Reunion Part 1. Uh, we're really going to look at a couple of pivotal rooms, um, the, cre- the, the writers of which have gone on to create shows, to run shows, to be key parts in other people's shows uh, in their rooms. And I thought it would be interesting to kind of find out where these people came from and how the rooms worked. So uh, here's part one of the Friends reunion. We're calling it part one uh, because while the four people who participated in it... Um, jumped right in, they also were kind enough to introduce me to a whole bunch of other Friends writers. So we're going to be convening at some point with a bunch of the other Friends writers uh, and talking about some of the later seasons. In this episode, we focus more on the early seasons. Coming up on these room reunion shows, uh, we'll also be talking to key members of the mutant enemy rooms. Uh, That's Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Angel, uh, Firefly, all those Joss Whedon shows, um, a lot of his collaborators, and we had a great time doing that as well. That'll be up in a couple of weeks. Uh, In the meantime, I need to thank my musical pals, who were so kind to pitch in on this. I I asked them, would you mind covering the Friends theme song? And all of them got me some really cool stuff, but right at the top Uh, You'll hear Rhett Miller of the old 97s and of himself, uh, a fantastic musician, one of my favorites, uh, and a great guy who sent me a cover of the Friends theme. And at the end of the show, you'll be hearing uh, our old pal Sarah Watkins with our old pal Kate McCucci. Kate used to do the theme song for Nerdist Writers Panel, and Sarah, of course, appeared on our big 100th episode, uh, as well as being a, a good friend of the show. And they also turned in a really fun, silly version of the theme. But I hope you enjoy those, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. If you do, as always, please leave a review on iTunes. It's incredibly helpful to me. Uh, like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Panel, and follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker. Now, here's Rhett. Two, three, four... No one told you life was gonna be this way Your job's a joke, you broke Your love life's DOA It's like you're always stuck in second gear When it hasn't been your day Your week, your month, or even your year But I'll be there for you When the rain starts to fall I've been there before I'll be there for you Cause you're there for me too I will definitely do a part two And I will invite you guys back Alright <laughs> <laughs>
for sure. We'll try to do it in a bigger space. Yeah, because because I, I don't know about you guys, but I don't feel comfortable having them here without us. I think that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially Astra. <laughs> Um, so I, I was saying before we started rolling, and I would love to hear about this. Um, as I said, we, we watched a couple of episodes, or we watched a bunch of episodes from the first season last night, and from from the pilot, really. But you know, from the first few friends of the show that knew what it was. Was that? I mean, you you get you were there for the pilot, right, yeah. Jeff uh, and Jeff? And we should say who's here. Our old friend Jeff right, Greenstein, Jeff Greenstein. Yeah. Alexa Young, Jeff Straps, and Adam. Um, so you guys were here from you were there from the pilot. Adam, were you there from the pilot? Or I was there pilot? from episode one. Okay, and you were there. For Me too. Um, so from the pilot that you guys had worked with uh, Marta and those guys yeah. on Dream On. Right. And so you were asked to, like, I assume they kind of brought together a roundtable of people they thought were funny and to do punch-up on Yeah, it was really just us and uh, Jeffrey Cleric, uh, and who actually had uh, moved to Los Angeles and joined the writing staff of Dream On, which we were running at the time. And so, yeah, we, we were running, again, correct me if I'm wrong on this. Yeah, we were running Dream On. After we, we took, Dar- Marta, oh, let me rewind the tape. Uh, Marta and David gave Jeff and I our first job. I mean, uh, we did a couple of uh, uh, outside writing uh, assignments before that and then got an actual staff job. Mm-hmm. Right. So we were staffed in Dreamland and rose from like staff writer to, you know, showrunner, yeah. supervising producer, showrunner, I think. Yeah. Um, by the end of the uh, fourth season when they left to go on their Warner Brothers deal. And we stayed, you know, they still consulted on the show and still very present on the show. And so when they had it, they actually had two pilots, The Year of Friends. Uh, one was on Fox called Reality Check, which I think is primarily remembered as an early Hillary Swank credit. Um, and uh, yeah, She was the cool girl, you know, the, 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 like the... the the friend girlfriend possibility for the main character yeah. who was too nerdy to have her right, and that was a single camera half hour, so that was like kind of sexy. Okay. It was going to be single camera. And then it was their first, really. Their, I mean, after they did a dumb family album, but this was the multi camera show, and uh, so they asked us to come over and help out. <laughs> and so the punch up room. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was really? just the two of us and Jeff Jeffrey. <clears throat> um, and so that little cluster of five was around for the whole pilot week. Um, but to answer your question, it was very clear early on they knew exactly the show they wanted to do. Um, They had a very specific idea about the speed with which the show was going to operate. Three parallel stories, six characters equally weighted, uh, this particular snapshot of New York and that, you know, time after college when your friends or your family. And so there was a lot of work done in the course of that pilot week, but it was all kind of coloring inside the lines that they had set. And there was an interesting little bit of push and pull that happened with the network, and and it's this is we're adjuncts to this story, but mm-hmm. but um, the the first network run through, uh, and and this may be sort of uh, known at, at this point, but the yeah. but the network said, okay, toss out, you know, this is great, it's all lovely, toss out the other two stories, let's focus on Monica, wow. and uh, and the combination of of Marta and David and and Jimmy Burroughs who said, no, this is not what we're doing. We're doing this multi-track, multi-version, multi-storyline show, and the rest is the rest. Um, Do you guys remember? And, and Alexa and Adam, I think you guys can probably speak to this since you were you guys were busy on Dream On. What was the TV landscape at the time? What were you guys? You, I know Alexa, you had kind of bounced around on a few sitcoms before landing on Friends, right? Uh, yeah, I. What type of shows were those? 
Oh, the ones I was on? Yeah. Oh, well, I started um, on Clarissa Explains It All, which was this Nickelodeon show, which was incredibly fun and kind of subversive and, you know, primitive, but really, like great thinking and you know it as, it aspired to great things it was, ambitious. it was ambitious you know in its own yeah way and then I came out to LA and I was sort of introduced to you know multicam you know the reality of multicam network television and I was on two shows where I met a lot of really smart people but I felt honestly kind of lonely because um, whatever the whatever was happening to the showrunners because of the networks and just the process, you know, I feel like, I think to this day, those writers probably are shocked that I actually got a job on Friends and stayed there, because <laughs> I don't think I spoke very much, and when I did, I don't think it was the kind of comedy that was applicable, <laughs> so um, it was just much more kind of traditional, you know, it wasn't so much character based, it was more, and it was a time, um, and again, like, these are all really smart people that I learned from and was in awe of, but it was um, a lot of stand-ups, so it was a lot of sort of, you know, pitching like great jokes that were hilarious, but there was no discussion about character, really. You know, it was much more kind of a... And and that's not just the shows that I was on. In fact, uh, one of the shows I was on, Bruce Helford ran, which was to be a um, Roseanne for kind of for kids. It was with Gabby Hoffman, and it, it aspired to greatness. It really did. It was... It was wonderful, and then it got sort of blo- they turned it into blossom, and you know, but um, but again, like terrific smart writers, and you know, so but I did feel like you know I I sort of got to friends and thought I'm not I'm not crazy, and or, or I might be crazy, and we are all crazy, but at least like there's a kind of general agreement about what yeah funny is and what good is, well, and also it seemed to again from the beginning have that thing like you say Jeff it was baked in of this is a plotted show we're telling stories we're not just telling jokes which it seems like I mean I remember from the first time we had you on the podcast that's a real strength and interest of yours oh definitely although I often was it was like Alexa can we stop talking about like what is this a drama (laughs) (laughs) so um, Uh, and Adam where were you coming from when I had I had one job fired on the show called Phenom that was about um, James uh, Brooks. Light, right? James L. Brooks, yeah. Uh, Judith Light, Angela Gothels, William Devane, uh, Sarah Rue. I remember really liking that show. Yeah. It was pretty good. Yeah. Um, it got, this will tell you what the television landscape was like then. It got canceled with an average of 17 million viewers a week. So yeah. bigger than American Idol. Unbelievable. <laughs> 1993, I guess. Wow. And I was utterly, I was heartbroken because mm-hmm. I had been a PA and a gopher making $300 a week before taxes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's not the 1970s. It wasn't. <laughs> 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 it was, I think that's still what they made. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I was totally heartbroken. I thought I would never work again. But uh, my partner at the time, Ira Ungerleiter, and I. Um, because we had sort of been anointed by James L. Brooks as being funny, and we were a team, and we were staff writers, we got a lot of off-job offers. We were incredibly cheap, and there were two of us, and Jim said we were funny. Um, So we got offered, we, we took a lot of meetings, and we got offered a job on 
the Dudley Moore Show, May He Rest in Peace, the Martin Short Show. May He Rest in Peace. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, what turned out to be the last season of Grace Under Fire because she had substance abuse issues. And no. Wait. <laughs> I'm sorry you have to find out this way. Um, I guess that was it, and then the show called Friends. And we were really close to taking the Martin Short show because he was a friend of Dick Blasucci, who was an SCTV writer who ran Phenom. And he had come and visited uh, Dick uh, in the room a number of times, and he was so nice and so funny, and he remembered our names. And, you know, this is not that long after Three Amigos and stuff. I mean, he's still a huge star, but he was a huge star then. And he was so nice and so funny. We're like, that show's going to run forever. And then we got the uh, interview on Friends, and they offered us the job, and it was like, well, the characters are the same, like, exactly our age, so why don't we do that one? And all three other shows disappeared within six weeks, and Friends became a crazy rock. That's wild. Um, I'm glad you brought up the interview, because I wanted to kind of dig into that. If, if you guys can remember, I mean, uh, Strauss and Greenside, you guys were kind of grandfathered in to yeah. this. Um, but do you guys remember the interview? Yeah, the interview... <laughs> yeah, the interview is really... It's a performance. Mm -hmm. um, it's... How do you play off of one another? It's not necessarily coming in with ten story ideas for somebody else's show. It's like sort of sh trying to show your potential employers what you're going to be like in the room. And Ira and I had a way of playing off one another, which years later we found out um, was likened to you guys, the Jeffs. That Martin and David thought we had a sort of interplay that was not unlike you guys, and they liked that. Because we could build on one another, and that's what you need in a room. It's not just joke, you know, unconnected joke, unconnected joke, unconnected idea, unconnected idea. It's like somebody says something, somebody builds on that first thing or changes it, and then, you know, takes it in another direction, and it, then that be, that that becomes a Jenga tower of plot mm. and comedy rather than just all these sort of disparate ideas. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, Alexa, what do you remember about that? Well, I knew who David and Marta were because I had done a lot of theater in New York, and so I knew their theater work. And um, at one point, we even shared a theatrical agent. But So I had been really tracking them in Hollywood and, um, and actually had really loved Family Album the year before and had been submitted for it and rejected. Um, but then I was on these two um, shows and hadn't had a chance to write a new spec. And so when Friends came along, I wanted, I knew, like, I was, like, in my bones, like, I must be part of this. And, um... Have you read the pilot? Yes. I read a stack of pilots. Um, you do every... Right. Well, I remember I was miserable and broke, and I <laughs> took myself to some really really bad kind of place like spa in Palm Springs but like one where it was probably like staff infection city from the like you know the waters but like you know it was not a classy place and I read but I was doing my best to feel like a person but anyway I read all I read the whole pile and I took copious notes on all of them in my type A way and I got to friends and I was like holy you know holiness it's amazing and I but I had also written down all the calories I'd eaten that day and like a whole list of things that like were going on in my life like people I had to call 
and there was like food stains on it. And, um, but I wrote, this is so special. I hope they really let this happen, you know? And so when I, being the, um, I don't know what, I don't know if it's kiss ass or what, but I brought that paper in to them for the interview and said, these are my calories. And this is what I wrote when I read your script. So, um, but, but, you know, I, they had also responded really well to a play I'd written that was very much in the tone of friends. So we sort of instantly clicked and, um, I don't just to comment on that because having been through staffing with Marta and David on Rivon for a handful of years and then and then going through this process, one of the things that happens more on Friends that or happened more on Friends than did in any room that I've ever been in, even though it happens some, is that sharing of personal data. Mm-hmm. Um, the the personal stories. I mean, I, every room has its you know exposure of of personal detail. But a lot of rooms that I've been in subsequently, um, uh, when I certainly when I wasn't running them, uh, it's a lot more sort of yeah yeah onto the joke. What's the funny thing? Sure. And and on Friends, in, in particular, there was a lot of talking about like what's going on in your life right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was ultimately mined a lot. And that and and that that was there on Dreamon as well. But something that that Kaufman and Crane clearly wanted to feed into the show were people who talk about the calories that they've eaten that day. Like, that's a big deal. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I mean, there's something to, and, and I think you guys both mentioned this when you were first on the podcast three years ago, that you were all the age of the characters on the show. Yeah, pretty I was older. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's funny. There were I was 30. I, start, I was 30. <laughs> I'm an old 30. It, it's funny because there were, this is going to sound really absurd, but there were kind of three micro-generations in the room because mm-hmm. Martin and David were a little older than Jeff and Alexa and me mm-hmm. and then Adam and Ira and Jeff and Mike were a little younger than that and so there was every once in a while I remember there was a, a, a point where if you remember this episode there was a, there was a story where Joey's trying to pick a stage name because mm-hmm. he thinks Joey Tribbiani is too ethnic <laughs> and so we all started pitching funny stage names you know and someone said you know like Joey Stalin which ended up in the show right and of course Joey has no idea who Joseph Stalin is so I remember one of us again I never know between Jeff and me who pitches a joke we're like Joey Heatherton and the young half of the room goes silent. <laughs> right. And I realized that Joey Heatherton was a break point. It was a line. If you were over 30, you knew at that point you knew who Joey Heatherton was. And if you were under 30, that didn't mean anything to you. That's really funny. Uh, I remember, just to build on this also, because there were, uh, you know, I'm sort of from another time anyway. So um, <laughs> that creates some interesting <laughs> dynamics. But And also, I'm a theater person. And so, David, once somebody mentioned Gwen Verdon. Um, and 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 um, there was a whole sort of who's that from the staff, and so we all were, you know, Martin, David, and some of us were appalled, you know. But then it became this thing where any time there would be like a, a reference of somebody from, you know, like further back, Ira would sing "String of Pearls." He would go, so that went on for years. Like any time, you know. That that also that also had this is an endless diversion. That's possible, but we we when David was turning forty, yeah, right, because that I think he was that that year. It turned into what like he was turning forty to what was it like in In the the (laughs) forties? Which is is endless 
Ira Rum, which I think started that whole, yeah, that's right. that whole ridiculousness, <laughs> uh, which David, of course, uh, was both funny about it and clearly loathed. Yeah, um, but we were. I mean, how many Jews did you save? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yes. We were encouraged to bring personal stories to the room, and there were episodes that happened as a result of as a result of stories we would recount from from things that were going on at that moment, things that had happened to us when we were the age of the characters. I remember there was a storyline that happened. Her storyline that came right out of something that had happened to my wife's sister. She was a, a rock musician of some renown, and uh, she found that uh, at the Hard Rock Cafe in Las Vegas, there had been a woman going around claiming to be her and running up charges on her credit card. And the thing that my wife's sister found so galling was that this girl was having a much better life than she was. And of course, that turned into the one with fake Monica, where Monica discovers this woman running up her credit card and has the exact same response: Why is she taking classes at the new school? You know, it's like and. And so we were constantly cycling those things into the show. And so if it had that kind of authenticity about the 20-something experience, I think it's because a lot of us were sort of searching sure. our age. Yeah, most shows it was like, let's, okay, now let's let's stop chit-chatting, right. personal stories, let's get back to work. And friends, it was like, more, more, more. Yeah. That was the work. Yeah. Well, and it feels like that was a breaking open of that sort of room. I mean, I don't know that that, that kind of thing... <clears throat> happened so much leading up to Friends, where people were mining their personal experiences in the same way. No, there wasn't really a lot of... I didn't have a lot of personal experience about being a 13-year-old tennis prodigy. Right. You know, so Friends was great because I was living, you know, there were five of us in a three-bedroom apartment, so... I believe it was Adam's leather pants that uh, gave rise to the Schwimmer leather pants story. <laughs> There's a million of those. I've got a friend of mine convinced me to just do something unlike myself and buy leather pants, which I spent several hundred dollars on and never wore once. (laughs) That it did lead to a story which was like uh, New Year's resolutions. What if we all do something that's unlike ourselves? And for Ross, it was the leather pants. For Chandler, it was to not... Be sarcastic. Um, but we were really part of the um, agenda. There was to actually mock Adam for his leather pants. So we tried. We really genuinely, like, well, uh, we, I put quotes around genuinely. Genuinely, we tried to get Adam to wear his leather pants to the show that the night it was being shot. We were like, "Come on, man, you got to!" Just because we wanted to see him in the leather pants. They never came out of the closet. <laughs> You know, I would say also, in addition to the, you know, apropos of what you opened with, which is what was this room like, mm-hmm. it was an uncommonly uh, embracing kind of room. I mean, I've been in a lot of really good writer's rooms, but I think the thing I remember most about Friends is it really felt like a no-failure zone. You could pitch anything, and a lot of the wilder Except ideas... Except if you were Astro. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, Why is that true? Part two. That'll part two. Um, But no, it was you were encouraged to pitch things that were far left of center. I mean, one of the one of my most vivid memories of that first season was uh, Adam and Ira came in one day and said, "We, you know, Ross gets a monkey because he wants to see more saucy and European." Now, yeah, you almost remember that exactly. We said Mediterranean was saucy and Mediterranean. Saucy and Mediterranean. (laughs) Saucy and Mediterranean. I like the specificity. I mean, I think there's a lot of shows where you would be run out of the room but pitching something that off the wall. No, the interesting thing about that was we 
we, it just tickled us just the image of a guy who would get a monkey, but it was <laughs> it was David who because at first it was dismissed out of hand, and then it, we just kept picking it. But again, it was only in a room like Friends where they someone wouldn't pull you aside and say, shut up, I don't want to hear a fucking monkey in there. Um, but it was, I think it was Jeffrey Claric on a weekend, and David came up with the idea of anthropomorphizing the monkey and making the monkey a stand-in for a girlfriend, a roommate, right. a best friend. And that was what made the monkey worth doing. Just a joke of a guy getting a monkey, while kind of funny, wasn't the thing. The thing was to like put Ross in all these different relationships. Yeah, it came out of the monkey. conversation that, that we had in the room, because I got really irritated by the idea. <laughs> and I said, I said, because I said, there's, the, the thing is, if we, if we, if we do, I mean, we can't okay, even think Jeff about was a this. biology major. Yeah, I was a biology okay, major. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Animals, I'm like, I, because because the animal bullshit on television is ridiculous, <laughs> and, and and like if we're cutting to the monkey for freaking reaction shots, you know, ha ha ha, mm-hmm. the monkey is giggling or he's putting his finger, like forget it, because monkeys are awful. Monkeys <laughs> are awful, awful, awful. They're like little people. So we can't. And I and I, and, and I mean this in like they they throw shit at things and they they. they I remember this. And they're not. Fun. They're complicated. It's like having a little person, and and that. So so I, I went on this tirade, right? <laughs> and David went away for the weekend and came back having had that conversation right. with Jeffrey and went, yeah. Well, that's like having a girlfriend. So let's do that. Yeah. yeah. And it was like, it was it was like it was not it was not Bing Bang Bang, but it was really funny to see that happen. But of I, course, the more the more uh, 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 anti Jeff. <laughs> the more I and I dug our heels in because, you know, we were like 23. <laughs> so we were like, this is just funny. This guy's getting heated. Again, what was so unique was that they let us yeah, argue that's that right. much. Right, Never right, on a right. Show yeah. Where they let the arguments go on so long. And... The hours on that show oh, were legendary. Yeah. I've never worked on a show like that before. Ten o'clock was an early night, mm-hmm. truly. Well, like, yeah. We would go, we would, back when Howard Stern was on terrestrial radio, mm-hmm. I would listen to Howard Stern on WXRK here in Los Angeles on my way in, and there were nights where I would listen to him on my way home. Right. We had 24-hour days, yeah. and there were a number yeah. of them. And it, well, it was because, I think, you know, and again, I think maybe we took this to the other rooms that we have run since then. David was democratic to a fault. Yeah. David and Marta wanted to make sure that we did not go forward with anything that anyone felt was phony or uncomfortable or hackneyed or had somebody else had done already. And so they would let those... I mean, I shut the room down once. Uh, well, I, more than once. I shut the room down because there was a joke that referred to like kind of... A, uh, this incestuous, what, what Joey and Monica were kind of giving the impression they, that, oh God, I'm going to get this completely wrong. There was a joke that referred to like an incestuous couple that's cocktails in Appalachia. And I shut the fucking room down because I said that's a hackneyed comedic reference. And this probably raged on for an hour. I thought that Paolo being a Latin lover was a cliche. And so there was a brief moment, do you remember this, where Paolo was an Eskimo? Yes. Where he was a hot Eskimo. That's not a cliche. I think I might have pitched that. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of remember that. First of all, is there was, and we actually ended up doing this, was uh, Rachel fell out the window and got caught, got her ankle caught on a strand of 
Christmas tree lights and was swaying in the window outside Mr. Heckle's apartment. And I said, what is this, a Warner Brothers cartoon? That could never happen in a million years. And that raged on. I mean, but you could shut the room down. You were never taken aside. And, t- and, no, we, and there was no hierarchy with regard to position, which is which was extraordinary to me because on the other shows I'd been on, it was really like, you don't talk, you know, and if the show run, I mean, I think there's two kinds of shows. There's the ones where you can tell the showrunners what you really think and they, they are reaching out for your authentic response and there's the ones where you say yes to whatever the showrunner want, wants and from yeah. day one they created an environment where we were able to be honest and say you know like speak up and hash it out together. But yeah, I didn't know having left that room that you couldn't say to a showrunner that's a terrible idea. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I spent really our entire uh, up until that yeah. point yeah, and the our David entire school. Yeah. room yeah. experience was was with Coffin and Crane and and you know, somebody would pitch something, and you'd go down a road for for a while, and if you felt like you needed to have a deeper cup, you could really say, that's just awful. Mm-hmm. It's awful. It feels fake, and here's why. And they would let you speak. It could wind up going that way anyway, mm-hmm. but you'd but get you got, fired. You got hurt. You really yeah. did. And, and I think, for, you know, and this was something that I think, I remember the, the was so important for first season, but really characterized the entire run of the show. The outside the lines, the strange, idiosyncratic nature of the show of the characters of the references mm-hmm. I think came from the fact that there wasn't sort of this veil of censorship <laughs> laid across the room you know like one thing I remember really vividly was we were breaking this story which was about the girls spying on a hot guy across the way and I think the house number was Brad Pitt and I remember Alexa saying George Stephanopoulos <laughs> Which is ten thousand times more interesting, Absolutely. and honestly, more than anything, what I what I remember taking away from that moment was that flattered the girls. It made the girls seem smarter and more on the ball than if they had just been spying on Brad Pitt. And like, I think that in a lot of rooms, something that far out of the norm would not have been pitchable, mm-hmm. you know. But in that room, it was okay. And so, a lot of the the fun of that show and this and the prickly, you know, uh, specificity. Comes from that the, the way the room was run. I remember fighting for the girls to use the word dude. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, really? Yeah, because girls started to do that yeah. in the 90s. Yeah. Dude, what are you doing? <laughs> um, and Martin and David were like, that's, they wouldn't, nobody talks like that, but they. They let us try it, and it and it worked. And it's a little tiny detail, but it it was one of those things that added authenticity. I remember, and this again speaks to their degree of tolerance for uh, us, us getting under the hood and, and adjusting the undercarriage. Um, there, I, I remember uh, this is probably second season, but the first time Smelly Cat came up, and I pitched the title, um, and uh, Phoebe references it. She doesn't sing the song the first time, but you hear about it. Um, and Lisa said the line, and she said, blah, 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 Smelly Cat. And I went up to David between takes, and I said, no, it, it has to be Smelly Cat. <laughs> I'm 24. We're in front of 400 people. It's a very tense situation. It's still early days on the show. And David was like, seriously? You want me to go and tell her that? Give her this line reading of these And I was like, yeah. And he goes, 
are you sure? <laughs> and I sort of saw my career. <laughs> and I just went, yes. Hmm. And he was like, okay. And I saw him, and it was like a cartoon. Like, I saw him, and I couldn't hear what was being said. <laughs> and I saw Lisa kind of cock her head, this kind of strange look, and like sort of roll her eyes. But she did it. It got a much bigger laugh. And it, it's like one of, they let us really make everything perfect. Mm-hmm. Now, I wasn't always right about that stuff. But, and, and they, they, Morgan David certainly had a couple conversations with me. Where like, you really got to pick your battles. <laughs> that, that was one where I was like, I just, I don't know why that's just mm-hmm. better. Um, and they were like, okay, we'll try it. Um, and, you know, I remember times where we would sit and argue for two or three hours over a fucking downbeat. Like the off-story joke at the yeah. beginning of the scene. Like, like you guys were saying, like it's not funny enough, it's not fresh enough. It's, you know, I remember one time it was like uh, somebody walks in and says what's going on? And Jeff Astroff pitched that Chandler said, the fifth dentist caved, now they're all recommending oh. Trident. Oh like, my God. Which I still believe, and you should ask him, he had in his back. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think that just comes you know, the off the cuff. But, uh, you know, it was like, we wouldn't stop until we had one that was like that. Mm-hmm. And then we would move on. That was one of the signal moments of the season for me, in terms of setting, like, the tenor of the, yeah. you know, the comedic... The bar. Yeah. The comedic voice of the show, to me, was so encapsulated in that exchange. It was so off the wall. There was one moment where, where Chandler uh, is suddenly... He says, he's basically stepped in it, and he goes, Dear Lord, this parachute is a knapsack. <laughs> you know, it was I one, heard someone say that on a podcast yesterday. Yeah, I mean... Wow. Recorded like recently. I can only compare it to what the experience working on Will and Grace was like. Mm-hmm. I've stumbled into an entirely different vernacular, mm-hmm. and just the comedic voice of this show is not like what they're doing mm-hmm. on Madman of the People at right. nine thirty. It's an entirely different yeah. voice. But even, I mean, not even what they're doing on Cheers. Yeah, which, like Cheers, we can all agree is a great show, possibly a perfect show. But this, but Friends had a different voice, and, and I think that's what people responded yeah. to. Yeah, and clearly that came from the, this democratic room. Uh, I'm curious, I want to just follow up on a couple of things that you guys mentioned. Um, Adam, you mentioned, you know, choosing your battles, and yeah. maybe being told to choose your battles. That must have been an enormous learning curve for you. And in as much as, and I'm curious about this from you as well, Alexa, that like, first of all, learning how to be in this room where your voice was heard, and that everybody had this kind of equal say in what was funny. Um, but then not taking it too far uh, and, and choosing your battles. Do you guys remember instances or remember what that, that experience was like? I know for me... coming into the room very early. I know for me it was a little bit different because I was, you know, Marta was there, but I was the one sort of female writer on the show. And so this happens, I think, for anybody who's the one, you know, um, I'm working with Marta right now and there, there are, there's one straight man and one, uh, uh, 
gay fellow on the show, and so they come to you come to represent all um, minorities. So it's like you're speaking for not only women but Native Americans, and you know, sort of. So I, you're the watchdog for that kind of thing. So I know that I would get really riled up about stuff um, that you know I felt like was not you know I didn't want the girls behaving that way. It's bad for women. And blah, blah, blah. Right. Do you um, because again, like looking at these first episodes, the women are so sharply drawn, so different from each other, which is not always the case in a sitcom. Do you remember those conversations? Only, only in theory. Like most of the time, we all really hashed it out and sure. you know had a great interaction about stuff. But um, but invariably, when you're sorting things out and trying to figure out the story, it's you know I know that there were. I mean, I just, we, the thing is, we loved the characters so much, you know, and it's funny when people say, who did you write? You know, people who don't understand television will say, who did you write for on that show? It's like, we loved, we cared, part of the, part of those late nights was passion for every character and feeling so connected to them that, you know, you could feel if they wouldn't do that, so. Yeah, I remember standing up and saying, like, she wouldn't do that! (laughs) You know, like, I've never been on a show before where people would get that passionate and... But about, know, what about that as opposed to yeah. that's funny or not funny? Right. Yeah. No, no, that's no, yeah. It was, it was really like, interesting. That's about so, character. You're so fucking totally mortgaging the character. That's fucking <laughs> bullshit. Right. Well, and it was all, there was friendly. As soon as you would leave the room, it'd be like, no hard feelings. Yeah. But it, it was, it was fucking intense. Yeah. Really intense. We, we argued about Chandler and Monica getting together for three years. <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah. Three yeah. years. The, uh, the discussion of, I mean, the longest, most arduous rewrite we had was the first season finale about, like, how are we going to change the Ross and Rachel dynamic? And that discussion, oh, my God, it raged on for days and days and days and days and days and, days and nights and days. And even when we had the fix, it raged on. And what, what, were the, what was the discussion? What were the arguments? Well... You know, I told this story in a different context, but maybe it warrants repeating. There was, we, we had become, I think, by the end of the first season, uh, Tired. Tired of he's pining, she's oblivious. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the truth was, it made both of the characters, it just didn't flatter either one mm-hmm. of them. Ultimately, it made the, at a certain point, it made them awful. Yeah, and so we knew we needed to change it up. And I should also say, by the way, we didn't, I, uh, going back to the pilot, we did not, the, when, Mon, when Martin and David wrote the pilot, the big romantic com- comedy couple was Monica and Joey. Joey. And it was going to be the good girl, it was kind of everybody's den mother. Who, you know, and the bad boy actor across the hall. But during the course of the pilot week, when we saw David and Jennifer on stage together, it was like, oh no, <laughs> I think the answer might be over there. Um, so Ross and Rachel became a thing, and we serviced that thing mm-hmm. in the one with the East German laundry detergent, the one with all the poker. There were certain like markers, the blackout, which I think is honestly the single best episode we did that season. Um, <laughs> uh, it's out there. And let me, and let me I meant to interject this before, just um, in talking about the monkey. You know, David realizing, or, or David and Jeff realizing that they could give these attributes to the monkey and make it a personal story. You know, you guys were also playing with this serialized element. Yeah. And yeah. so the timing was right for that monkey story. Yes. Once they cracked that monkey story, which yeah. is really interesting to me. Anyway. Oh, so anyway, we knew we needed to change up Ross and Rachel, and the question was exactly how to do it. And it was 
was potentially kind of dangerous because it was working really well for us and the audience was extremely invested in it. And so the question of exactly how to change the polarity without wrecking the cool thing that was going was extremely complicated. And I remember uh, David, I think, had pitched a story where the two of them are somehow on a road trip and the car hits a bump and Rachel is thrown into Ross's lap and he kisses her and then they back away. What are we doing? I don't know if I want to do this. Are we ready for this? And that actually got some traction. And then I said, I don't want to see that scene. I said, they're not Woody Allen and Diane Keaton. Uh, I don't want to see two people who should be together neurotically talk about why they shouldn't be together. And by the way, again, to say that to the showrunner, I can, I mean, that's just... And that is exactly how he said it. Yeah, I really, that yeah, is kind yeah. of how I said it. I don't want to see that scene. Um, and let, so, let me interrupt you for a, go ahead. For a second. Um, again, you're all, even though you are in partnerships on this show, Jeff... When Greenstein oh, says something yeah, like this, yeah. what do you do yeah. as his partner? <laughs> no, absolutely. So, so it depends. And, and Greenstein and I, we've been, historically, we, we met in college. We are friends now. We went through a long year, years of partnership, and then we've been working on our own since. Um, and the reaction is always the same. We can't. I can't cut my reaction in any way. If yeah. I agree with him, yeah. I agree with him. And yeah. if I don't agree with him, I tell him he's an idiot. Yeah. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So it's like, that, it's like if, I happen to agree with that, by the way, when, when he pitched it. But if I hadn't, sure. I would have said, that's because you're an idiot. Yeah. That's because you don't care. No, we like, certainly, like, we, there were three sets of partners in the yeah. room. Uh, and we all mixed it up with each other. There was no, I don't think there was any particular <laughs> for us because we were always arguers. <laughs> there was no particular like fealty to, to the partnership. It was kind of like, whatever you think the best idea was. But that, that in that moment, I don't want to belabor this, but that, that kind of stopped the room cold because <laughs> it was like, we were working on something, Jeff, and then you killed it dead. Um, and I said, um, I said, you know, if, if I, my, uh, my, uh, my wife wrote her thesis at Berkeley on Jane Austen, and so she had forced me to read all of the Jane Austen novels <laughs> over the course of our relationship. And I said, you know, if Jane Austen were writing the story, it would go something like, uh, you know, um, it's Rachel's birthday, uh, she, Ross is going out of town, it's killing him, he's going to miss it, he leaves behind a really intimate and personal gift. She opens the gift, it totally changes her feelings for him, and then he comes back from the trip with another girl. Mm. And there was a beat, and David said, well, let's do that. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, and that was the story. And I wanna, if, to, to follow up, I want to comment on that, because the unspoken, like, we're, we're talking about this room, this room, this room, yeah. like, it was a bunch of people just having their own stuff, and, and we've mentioned the showrunner. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's, there's, I mean, in terms of managing that kind of democracy, and yet having a tremendous compass. You know, you could you could run these conversations till four in the morning and wind up with nothing. Mm -hmm. But we didn't do that. So I, I just have to to acknowledge. Yeah, they that. they were not in love with the, their own ideas. Mm -hmm. I mean, to the exclusion of everybody else. And right. and I think there are a lot of showrunners who are, and you're really there just to sort of reflect their glory and validate their choices. And I, I never felt that was the case. If there was something they felt very strongly about, every once in a while you would get the look. Like we're going this way, but that was very seldom. More often than not, it was like we want to hear from everybody, mm -hmm. and a great idea could come from any corner of the room.
room, including the writer's assistant. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were, like I said, democratic to a fault. Yeah. Well, it seems like they were very much on the same page about what this show was, even as yeah. everyone was discovering it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And they, they, would, they, would have, they would have arguments, yeah. too. Sure. Yeah. They would have arguments, too. And I remember many times David saying, okay, can I get you to the first lily pad? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. well, that, this was a question yeah. where, yeah. you know. But part of, part of what that is is, and I'm working with Marta right now, so I'm getting to see it in action, but she has one of the finest, like, I don't know anybody who has her ability to, like, her radar for connecting emotionally Completely. and and Absolutely. what I learned from her is many 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 things but one of them is she, you know you'll have a good idea and she'll say yeah I'm just not feeling it like mm-hmm. theoretically this made right. sense and dramaturgically it did but it isn't really playing mm-hmm. or like I just don't yeah and we learned, a, it, you know it was unbelievable trust that because sure. David was brilliant in mechanics. Mm-hmm. Um, they they complemented each other beautifully. Okay, it's not saying one to the exclusion of yeah. the other. Not but Marta really yeah, did have that, that that kind of you know earthy sense of connection to the characters. Where it was like if she said something like that, well, I just don't believe in that. Mm-hmm. That doesn't feel true to me. Or I, I don't think I would do that mm-hmm. in that situation. That resonated. You know, you took it really seriously because she did have exquisitely tuned instincts about mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Well, I want to kind of get into the nuts and bolts in a minute, but I do want to follow up with one other thing, which was, and it, it's sort of related, you know, by way of example, when you say Paolo shouldn't be a Latin lover, oh, yeah. that's that's a hackneyed premise. We've <sighs> seen that. Yeah. And that argument starts to, you know, grow into, a, take flame a bit. How do you come back around? And it's, it's similar to what you were talking about, Adam, where, where like, I'm not always right about these things, and, and I have to know where to choose these battles, but how long does that argument come around? When does someone, someone, someone well, back down? How does someone... One thing I, I, I really agree with what Jeff was saying in terms of there was always a vision going on. It wasn't a free-for-all. You know, like, it was egalitarian, but you know, David and Marta were the voices of the show. So, you know, the pitches moved through them to, like, David was the person that would, you know, pitch to the writer's assistant. Like, we would pitch to him. He would, you know, sometimes it would be our language, but there was a consistent, for all those seasons, there was a consistent you know, vision that they both had that we were all working under, even though we were, you know, having a great crazy time doing it, but I felt like there was always somebody running, there was, the boat was moving, so I remember that, I I feel like I advocated for it because I said, I felt like it was tropey, but we're dealing with romantic comedy tropes in a way and, you know, when I sort of just thought about myself and what would really give rise to competitive feelings for Ross, like, that's a slam dunk, you know? Like, he's from another country. I don't remember exactly how long that lasted, but it was not brief. It really was not brief. But what ultimately wound up happening, and and you see it in the episode, is um, is we gave like Ross's attitude about Paulo was my attitude. Son's attitude about having him in the yeah. Series. As a matter of fact, like this you is, are a huge cliche. yeah, like you are a huge crap weasel. Like <laughs> said, like Ross could dump on him and therefore like almost like make fun of like this is the fucking guy yeah. that I'm competing with. Or like, so, cliche. Cliche. Yeah. Yeah. Right. so at least really? we so we 
drew a little circle around it in mm-hmm. a way. But the other thing that happens is that, look, at a certain point, everyone else is laughing at the idea but you. And it starts to get traction <laughs> comedically, and you kind of have to back off. We, The Eskimo did get a little traction because there was something really funny about a hot Eskimo. Um, <laughs> but then at a certain point, it came back around. I think I feel like somebody walked back into the room and said, like, a what? <laughs> or some. But it just, and, and at a certain point, the comedic momentum is such that you just cannot stand sure. in the way of it. Sure. But it did really, that did go on a while. I made sure it went on a while. Um, that's the thing. Like Jeff and I, we we having worked with David and Marta for five years on Dream On and then on Friends. Like tenacity was something to be encouraged. And in a way, when I went to other jobs, I had to unlearn that a little bit. Like I had to learn that that level <laughs> of tenacity maybe not always such a great idea. Um, oh, my, I mean, my first job on a show after that, where I was working for somebody else and not yeah. running my show, mm-hmm. I quickly became the guy who got to take a couple of other people into the other room and work on the other scene right. or the other whatever because <laughs> if I didn't like a, a thing in the story and the showrunner was was done talking about it even want to hear one more peep and I had a really hard time getting yeah, rid of one sure. more peep it took a few years you had been doing this for six seven years yeah it's like where I Interesting. teach teaching myself to care a little less and to go home a little earlier was a hard one <laughs> <to learn. laughs> Sure. But that, that's yeah. the thing, that level of caring, we had, you know, whatever yeah. it was, 10 big brains on every problem. And that level of perfectionism and that level of caring gave rise to, like, a season that I still am so immensely, I'm talking about first season, mm-hmm. that I'm so immensely proud of and that I feel, you know, I feel that our collective contribution uh, was so, you know, important and, and that I, and also, I, I don't know if this goes without saying, I hope it doesn't go without saying, I really loved everybody in that room. I mean, yeah. there was nobody yeah. that you were like, oh, him again, hurry. You know, it was like everyone, we had such enormous affection for yeah. each other. Well, it was like right. we were each other's best friends. I mean, we lived together and... And I, I don't know if I've really had that experience on any staff where like end to end, it's just people that I just felt so cared for by and cared for so deeply. It was just a really close-knit group. And that was... I think good room casting on the part of the showrunners because there's no way to know if you mix up those people whether it's going to work. But but I really can't think like with all of the all of the time spent and we're we're seriously talking about Mm -hmm. generally sixteen hour days plus and and maybe more than that like in the room Um, and and seven days a week or or six days a week yeah Um, twenty two twenty five days in a row like that kind of stuff and and I cannot think of a morning where having fought or whatever, fought it out, where I came in the next day with anybody going, you know, I just don't want to see, I don't want to talk, just somebody's on my nerves. You know, once Nobody. I accidentally, we were having, it was late in the season, and I don't actually even remember what the episode was, except that it had Joey and Chandler sharing a bed. You guys know where I'm going with this. <laughs> there was, uh, it was late at night. It was the episode where, uh, uh, I don't know. They were sharing a sofa bed for some reason. And I was exhausted. And Jeff Astroff, and he's not in the room, okay, but Jeff was known colloquially as the garbage barge because he would pitch the most edgy. He came from that end of the spectrum. So he would pitch the most edgy, most sophomoric kind of comedy. And brilliantly, okay? So it was very late, and and they were like, Joey and Chandler were in bed together, and Astroff pitched like a fart joke. Like like something where he sniffs the air and says, was that you? Mm -hmm. And I said, just blurted out, I said, that's a fucking terrible joke. (laughs) 
And Jeff really got his feelings hurt. And I felt awful. And he, like, I had really hurt his feelings. And it killed me. Like, I still, I shrink from telling the story because it was so embarrassing. Like, I hurt my little brother. It was awful. Like, and I just... let you forget that. You know? <laughs> yeah. I remember we being there at one, one night after many, many, many nights, and I looked across the room at Psychowitz, and I was like, I think I just saw your beard grow. <laughs> More than a few occasions after that, Ashraf asking you if that was, it, a was that a fucking joke? Yeah. yeah. Well, like, it clearly, was, I mean, there's, I'm, there's, it's so loaded, right? Yeah. Like you're you're criticizing this joke. You're criticizing his idea. You're criticizing him. Oh yeah, it was terrible. I, I mean, you were terrible, and I so apologized and re-apologized, and he made sure I kept apologizing <laughs> for three months of this. Right. You but probably should right. do one more right I now. Jeff, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah. But he was right. That was, that was completely out of line. And and the moment I said it and saw that look on his face, I was just stricken. Like, because but, we never treated each other like that. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it had kind of come out of my mouth. And, well, we went right up to the line, because the arguing was so passionate. Sure. It usually didn't become personal. Right. It was like, I don't know if we want to do that. I mean, don't yeah, we want exactly. to do, you know, it was more like in that vernacular. But sometimes if, you know, you, you had worked a 70 hour or an 80 hour <laughs> week, it would come out with some edge and, you know, it's not anyone's fault, but, and, and some of these feelings would, would get hurt. But that's because that level of argument, that level of um, critique of, attention to detail was encouraged and that continued on into the later seasons. But I I will also say that, you know, being, having been on, um, a couple of staffs previous prior, and um, you know, I was very, uh, I was very aware of things that women did in rooms, and had my own little list of things I didn't want to do to perpetuate, you know, sort of stuff that wasn't good for the ladies. Um, so one of, well, like like apologizing, like like hemming and hawing before you put your pitch out there, you know. And traditionally, like on the other shows I'd been on, like men didn't really question their pitches; they just put them out there. And then I got to Friends where despite this passionate arguing, it was like, okay, this is the worst piece of shit idea you're going to hear all day. Not this, but so all the men, all the men were like, it was a self-deprecating, charming group of men. It was delightful. So it was sort of like, well, I guess I should probably do it too then since they're doing it. But but it was, it was a really like lovely, lovely group of of men. Well, it seems like... Again, it's good room casting, right? Yeah. From the beginning, there was this and mutual respect. I don't know. Well, I'm still to say it. Statute of limitations is passed on all this stuff. You know, I think Bill Lawrence has talked about how it didn't work out for oh, him yeah. on the show. No, on and, and, uh, and I'll tell you, I don't think that was any fault of Bill's. I really don't. I think it was that his arrival in February of that year, or January, or whatever, it just changed the chemistry of a room that up to that point sure. was working. And, and, you know, apropos of what Alexa just said, it was one more bit of boy energy in a room that had a fuckload of boy energy. And it just changed the room. It wasn't something he was doing or not doing. It's just that we were the team. And so it was all of a sudden like, who are you? That was, it was, that's all it was. It just, that room coalesced so quickly. And we became this little fighting force so quickly that it was kind of like, 
Oh, yeah. like, so I, I just and I would argue, and interestingly, because because uh, Marta and I met with Bill when he pitched the first stories that, like, when he came to to take an outside assignment just to yeah. to talk on this, and and there was no writer we met with during that entire year who wasn't already on staff, right, before or after, who we would have considered bringing on. Like Bill, yeah. he got like he got it. He he did. He came in. He pitched like he pitched the characters. He pitched yeah. the show. He, he's a talented writer. He got the vibe. Like all of those things. And I, I mean, I totally agree with with what Jeff is saying on the front, which is like it. We had no idea that it was going to shift things, but it was like this tiny little drop of a little extra in one direction. And that I mean, yeah. if anything, it was like that. Well, it's a hard. I mean, there's this club, right? Right. Yeah. We really were. That was the thing. Is I, I should say. You know, we did not know that this was going to become a pop culture juggernaut, okay? We were just making, you know, apropos of what Adam said at the start, we were just making a little show that was about us. We did not, the show did not test well. It was like, it was in a hammock time slot, so we were protected, you know, we were between Mad About You and, no, we were between Mad About You and Seinfeld. And so we thought we'd get a shot, but we didn't know. The network believed in Mad Man of the People more than they believed in us. They gave them the 930 slot. We didn't know this was going to turn into a phenomenon. We were just making the little show we wanted to make. And then it took hold. And then it felt like something that was really special. And then it gathered momentum. And then audiences started to embrace it. And then it went to the number one show in the, in the country. Um, and I, I don't think I'll ever have, we will never have that experience. Well, again. I was looking at I the just, numbers last night. It was yeah. like 23 million yeah. by episode seven. Yeah. Maybe? And then that's, it went to, you know, when they moved this from 8.30 to 9.30, it was like rocket fuel. And it just went to another level. And all of a sudden, it was the show that everyone was talking about. And it was on magazine covers. And yet, it was still the thing that the Tambus kind of. I remember going somewhere on a vacation between the first and the second season, and I came back to LAX, and the cast was on every magazine cover. And my thought wasn't, wow, the show seems to have really taken (laughs) off. It was, boy, some editors are going to get in trouble. I didn't get it. I was so I had never, so inside. I'm so I had never been associated with any, with anything so successful. So I didn't get that when something becomes a phenomenon, it's supposed to be on every magazine cover. I'm just I'll like, some these editors are not talking. About <laughs> right, exactly. They should check in with each other. Yeah. We during the uh, the the, re- the only reason we did not stick around for second season is Jeff and I were only loaned out right. to Warner Brothers for one year. Um, we had a deal at Universal, and so we wrote a pilot during that season. Part which we wrote over the Christmas break, not the show from 2012. Um, we wrote a pilot. Jeff, it's well, I know. It got picked up by the Fox Network, and so we went off to run our own show. Um, but uh, I remember, I don't know if you guys have heard this story, but I remember shortly after we started work on Partners, there was the Waterman Pen ad. Yeah. And there was this ad for Waterman Pens that had the staff of Friends, and we weren't in it. And I was... It we broke hard my broker. heart. It broke hard my broker. heart. Because at the time, second season hadn't come on yet. And I was looking at that and going, well, she wasn't there. <laughs> he wasn't there. I was... And it was like, I felt like I had like kind of been bounced out of the club. It was heartbreaking. Like, I was... Because I, I really did still feel... I remember coming back to visit you guys. Teen second comedy season. is a harsh mistress. It is a harsh <laughs> mistress. And the, the show... I don't think, again, this is... I, the, the show had moved from a smaller soundstage to the big soundstage that it 
that it was in for seasons two through infinity. Um, and the audiences were bigger, and the laughs were bigger, and the excitement was bigger. And like we had kind of missed that a little bit. Like we got to take the initial rocket ship ride, but like you know, that turned into like. A fucking rock concert. Yeah, sure. The I mean, maybe did we get up to five hundred people in the audience? It yeah. was a big, big audience, and people wanted to see the show so badly that there would be a, and a whole, a, an entire other audience on another stage watching on closed circuit TV. Wait, because the tapings were so legendarily long. Right. Usually, taping now tapings nowadays go like I'm on. Um, Mom, which is on CBS. Hey, me too. Um, <laughs> and um, we do a lot of pre-shooting, and our uh, tapings go three hours max, usually, yeah, usually two and a half yeah. hours. Um, Friends tapings would go eight hours because we would do so much rewriting between takes. and so much coverage, six characters, and yeah, so much coverage and so much rewriting, and the, the tapings would maybe go eight hours, and people would stay, and the few people who would leave. They, we get filled in from, from people who are watching the clips. People would pass out and call them to the aisles. There were people to replace them with. That's actually something that is, has been tough for me because when when I'm on shows and I've been on dramas as well as comedies in the last couple of years, so I want to pitch when like a joke doesn't work or a line doesn't work or if they flub something because a lot of times flubbing something means it's too hard to say. And I remember my first job after Friends was actually a, a Zwick Herskovitz show um, and I would be on the set pitching and I remember Ed saying you don't know we trust the language here we trust the jokes and it was like okay oh really well I don't know you know so even on a show like that which had this very natural feel right where like you would think yeah but it was I was yeah I was just like well she's stumbling so can I simplify it for her and it's like, no, she's an actress. She can say it again. And it's different. Obviously, if there's a live audience, it's a whole different yeah. ball game. But um, I, I do want to talk about that. Let's just very briefly, you know, go from kind of the beginning to the end of any example episode. Yeah. You know, how, how, I won't say where did the ideas come from, but I imagine you're all pitching ideas. How does one take hold and start to become an episode? Well, well... Because we're with you guys, we should probably try to talk about something that happened in the first season, which is the hardest to remember. Mm. Well, anything you remember is, is helpful. You know, it was, you know, when I think about, Adam was talking about the crazy hours on the show. It was like putting a Swiss watch together. Because with three parallel stories and six characters to service and sometimes guest stars and stories that had to fit into the same time sequence, it was very, very complicated and sometimes Something was, and you want to also give all six of them something interesting to do, and you want to kind of mix it up every week, and so it was the hardest show to, to for in terms of story development of any show I've ever worked on because making all and something I remember you, know, you go to a run through and oh my god the C story doesn't work and now we need a whole new C story that fits into that it was in, tremendously difficult so you would break the individual storylines for an episode and we'd get them up on a board and then we'd go all the room as we did everything I mean and when we were there first season we did everything collaboratively, collaboratively there were no other rooms it was always that yeah. way and we would break yeah. we would break the three stories separately we break the A story, which is typically the one that had the most emotional content, and then the B story was slightly less meaty, and then the C story was just a comic runner. But we would break them separately. Um, we 
put all the beats on the board, and then we would A, B, and C it. We, sure. you know, put certain beats together. The, this is the cold open. This is the A scene. This is the B scene. But we can combine the first and the second beat from the A story, the yeah. B story, oh. into the right. And are there scene? enough group scenes in the story where they can check scenes? in? But the yeah. but the scenes were really fleshed out. We we really broke the scenes. You know, I don't know if it changed, but no writer went off to. It's very different than other shows I've been on since, where you do your own problem solving and you you know we know that you know they're gonna have a fight in this scene but i'm not i'm i get to choose what that is and how it works like on this show we which was terrific because it kept the vision consistent and the voice consistent so so we knew what it was and even sometimes what the language was for the turn of the moment those hard things to break we did collaboratively was what they wanted yeah a couple sample jokes that weren't just to make your job easier, but it was like, this is where the comedy comes from. These are the, they're like the trapping jokes. Yeah. Right? It's right, the, and right. they're emotional trapping jokes. It's not, it's, they weren't pitching random gags. It was, what's the joke that's on story, that's on character arc in the scene that's sort of the linchpin uh, concept. Um, the, from first season, is it the one with the, the dozen lasagnas? Oh, that was insane. Okay, so that, <laughs> so in terms of story structuring, yeah. That story. Here's what happened. We had shot an episode. All the episodes came in long. We shot an episode that came in eight minutes long, and to the point where it's like we're going to have to excise a story from this episode, and we had to slice out a story where um, Joey and Chandler are buying furniture together. And I think it was the one that ended up with them getting a foosball table, okay? The problem with the episode is that as Joey and Shannon were looping through other people's scenes, Monica constantly had a lasagna tray in her hand. And so we were trying to figure out, like, and I don't even remember why she had a lasagna tray in her hand, but it was in every, so when we watched the story all put together by the editor, we're like, we got to put a <laughs> lasagna tray in her hand in every fucking scene. How are we going to do that? And so we came up with a story where she's got to make lasagnas as an audition for a chef job. And so she keeps making lasagnas and having people try them so that we could get the pan in her hand. And so, so and then so we got Rachel helping <laughs> make lasagnas, and then Rachel lost the the ring that she was going to give back into, to Mary, one, of into one of the lasagnas. So yeah. she had to. But so we wound up building an episode backwards yeah. from an already shot story. That was, yes, that was... Um, did that ever happen? Did anything like that ever happen again? No. <laughs> that seems a little... That was, the, that was the only time we had to reverse engineer something, but they were always like a Swiss, a Swiss one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Always. Yeah. And plus, there was... We had already decided where, you know, in some ways what we wanted the seasonal arc to be, but one of the other magical things about David and Marta was that unlike any other show I've been on prior or since, they we stopped and assessed what was and wasn't working while it was happening yeah. in play. So, so, you know, it's it's different now with cable because you're putting a whole se- season together without having you know yeah. the benefits of getting audience response and it's also freeing because you don't have the network saying the numbers this the numbers that and can you put a blonde in the ensemble who doesn't belong yeah. but at the same time we were able to really look and see is this working are we buying this track like there were several times where we had had planned for Rachel and I'm thinking of to have like Mary or almost Mary other 
characters and then we you know for whatever reason it just wasn't working so then we terminated that arc and it wasn't necessarily the actor sometimes it was just it didn't feel right but but rigorous like attention to like is what we're wanting to do working you know what else you're reminding me of is is that something else we paid an extraordinary amount of attention to during that first season was you know, Marta and David had written this script obviously in a vacuum. They didn't really, they had a vague idea Schwimmer might play Ross, but other than that, it was all cast. And I remember a lot of what the discovery of the first season was continuing to tailor the characters to the actors who had been cast. And the two that stick out to me was Joey, okay, because not just, it wasn't just that Joey had tested the worst of any of the six characters, but that in general, we didn't find him particularly interesting. Mm -hmm. And so Joey began to change and he became less Tony Danza, mm-hmm. and he became a more well-rounded, interesting, still kind of dopey, but dopey guy with a code kind mm-hmm. of guy. He changed, and the character that actually I remember changing the most was Monica, because as originally written in the pilot, Monica was like everybody's mom. She looks after everyone. She's kind. She puts everyone else's feelings ahead of her own. Well, needless to say, that's not Monica. And I think Courtney was also struggling with the material we were giving her early on because it was kind of generic. Mm-hmm. And I remember a discussion, just apropos of what you're saying, where Marta sat us down and said, we need to talk about Monica. What is she like? And I remember, because at that point, Monica had been doing the setup line. She would always ask us the questions. We called her the Inquisitor. Yeah, and so we would, and I remember somebody saying, well, she's inquisitive. Right. She, she, she asked a lot of questions. She does seem to want to know. And so we would have these discussions every once in a while about, like, how are we, are we adequately, you know, limiting these characters mm-hmm. and defining them? And I remember that that one of the pivotal moments in the terms of the evolution of Monica was one of our sea stories had blown up for whatever reason. And we were there. It was really late. And we just came up with a story, which is just a Rachel Monica story about how Monica's a bad room. I mean, how Rachel's mm-hmm. a sloppy roommate. And it was like, just let's just ink it in. Let's just make it about something as simple as she never picks up her shit and Monica's had it. And Monica needs things to be a certain way. Monica right? needs things to be a certain way. And we started we got, to ratchet and, that up. Yeah, and you're, you're, not forgetting, that. you're forgetting one thing oh, go, go ahead. before that, because I remember the day everything changed. Yeah. For some reason, I stayed after run-through with somebody. I can't remember who it was. It might have been Psychowitz. But one or two of us were standing there after run-through. All the actors had left, and Courtney was straightening the furniture in her primary apartment. That's great. Yes, right. that's, right. That's, right. That's, right. that's right. And we were like, Courtney was straightening the furniture in her imaginary <laughs> <laughs> And it was like, maybe... Maybe she's... Yes. Yeah, that's what right. It is. And that's where... And that's where that's... And then... You're absolutely... And then I want to just... I just like to say here that as soon as I heard that, I, I unleashed all of my crazy type A stuff. <laughs> And I was like, you know, um, well, you know how, like, when your shoes, you don't put your shoes away, it's like they're talking to you. And everyone looked at me, and then we were like, and then all of this Courtney stuff about, like, all of her rules and keeping the clock six minutes ahead, and the uh, comforter has to be on this side because she was raised in California, so the ocean has to be on the right. And But the hilarious thing was I would come in, and I would have, you know, I would everyone would be like, yeah, Alexa, great, great, great. And then I'd be like, you know, you know, it's like when you're, you refill your trash cans, and they're over a certain point and it's like they're going like you better fucking dump me because I'm over halfway and they would look at me and they would go well we don't want to damn the character that's too crazy that's way too crazy and I'm like the other stuff is not and this is okay 
Again, okay. that that's I love that you remember that. I forgot yeah. that part. But it all yeah, it all came out of like we need to help this character. She's not funny enough. We need to help the actress. She's not coming to life mm-hmm. enough. We and so it was all constantly on the fly, continuing to tailor those characters. What's really actors. interesting is you see, I mean, watching week to week in nineteen ninety four, you yeah. never would have seen these things. But watching them on Netflix now, right. yeah, and watching six episodes at a time, you see these changes which do make them the characters that we knew for nine yeah. years but are so incremental. I mean, these are tiny changes to that character. Yeah. You know? No, Monica used to be fat. That whole idea, that wasn't in the pilot. That was something that came along as a result, right? That came along as I a result. I think Marta and David had always known that, actually. Oh, is they that came, right? I believe they yeah, did. They, did. they came in, because I remember back in the day when to get, you know, to get your show picked up, you had to list like four five possible episodes Um, uh, uh, so I remember one of them was about her history having been heavy oh great so much going in I remember they even had the planetarium Oh, oh yeah, where yeah. And Rachel have sex for the first time. That doesn't even happen until season two. two. Right. Yeah, that's right. We had that before we yeah. started work. On yeah, it was all just one. connected to to Ross's working at the museum. And, yeah, um, they, they would have sex under, under yeah. the yeah, right. yeah. The, right. The, but the evolution of Monica's character in the first season is real. Like if you go back and you you're yeah. watching and you it, the the. Her competitiveness, yeah, um, that begins to come out, uh, which then drives through the rest of the series. Where, where, yeah. you know, like her unwillingness to lose at anything, yeah, um, and it shows the poker game, the poker game, yeah. but also showed up yeah. at the foosball table, right? Uh, yeah, right. I mean, it, like it's uh, and and that. I, that character trait was actually based, I think, on a friend of Marta and David who mm-hmm. play poker. Mm-hmm. Right. You may hate to play poker because. But they, but the, yeah, just the, the point was that we, that they did stop to have mm-hmm. these discussions, these assessments of like, how are we doing? Are we adequately servicing everybody? Is this, is this a generic choice or is it defined? Mm-hmm. And uh, we did that quite a lot. And it feels like the, those adjustments, again, which are so small, but feel so big because you're working on such a small scale, um, it, Something like that makes all of the characters get to be funny. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. which is something I think that is unique to this show, that every character got to have jokes, every character got to have yeah. laughs, every character got to do slapstick even. Well, yeah, like the last sort of thing that would happen in, in a rewrite, because mm-hmm. um, typically you, there are like four rewrites. Um, the one of the, one of us would write a first draft. Right. So based we, on the notes on the yeah, based on the notes on the together. board, um, we'd outline the story together. Uh, outline the three stories together. We'd merge the three stories. You'd write an outline. You'd get notes from Martin and David, and then you'd go off and write a first draft. Then the group would rewrite that first draft, and that would go to table. So that was rewrite one. Then um, the actors would read it, and we'd rewrite. As a group, that was rewrite. Um, how extensive was that post table read rewrite? Huge. They were always huge. I mean, not not always, but for the most part, for the most part, they were. And they were huge, not because the network was giving us notes, but uh, like all great shows, because we were our harshest critics. Have yeah. seen these things said out loud and what works? And an interesting. You could say you could say like. I just really want to hear that. Mm-hmm. Like, and that was something again. I had to learn, like, to let go. But you would choose your moments where, like, I just, I'm sure. telling you, my friend Tony says, "How's that working out for you?" I'm telling you, that's going to work on Joanne. 
like that he would be that concerned if you would like the thing he cooked. <laughs> like, right. That, the pigs in the blanket. Yeah, the pigs in the blanket, the whatever, you know, whatever it is, like becoming like his core was loyalty. Um, and if, if we write lines that speak to that, that's going to work well for us. And so Martin and Dave were great about, okay, we'll, we'll hear it. I'm not, I'm not hearing it, but we'll hear it. And then if he would crush it, it would stay in. And, and they didn't, right. they had no ego about that. Right. But I think also one of, and, and one of the reasons that besides perfectionism, that that level of rewriting went on is in, in many ways it had to. And one of the reasons I think that it, it had, I mean, to achieve the levels is that, Arguably, Friends is the lowest concept successful yeah. show in history okay. of TV. Mm-hmm. Like there's right. there's no there's no lead. There's no serious high concept <laughs> element at all. Like like I mean, you can argue, you can't that, this show. No. argue that Will and Grace is in the same family, right? There's a lot but of even the gay best friend. You can say but, gay best but but there's yeah. a concept. Well, it was, it's a love story where they can never be yeah, together. Right. It actually had more of a hook than yeah, friends. Yeah. Which I mean, if you think of the title, it might as well be called People. Yeah. <laughs> right. Human. And it had <laughs> Fighting with that level of concept, the only thing that was in there was the time of your life where your friends or your right. family. Yeah. That, that was the only that was the only thing. But again, that's what single people are, like from the time you write. It's it's um, and so because of that, we had to we had to dig down into character and story on a weekly basis and the lives of these people. And there was an interesting thing that happened when the first set of promos Hit. Oh yeah! In the, in the first season, that. that we wrote. That we wrote. That Everyone we wrote. has taken responsibility for the Calvin Klein ad parody. We wrote it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's true. Uh, I, uh, the first, the first season. You're on record. We're the underwear right. in, in, in case we're not giving enough credit yeah. for that. <laughs> um, um, but but it was actually my, my my wife was on a plane flight from Northern California to, to Southern California, and for some reason. They she got into conversation with this woman in her her twenties, and the promos had just hit, and she landed and she said, "Mindy, my wife said this show's going to be a hit." And I said, "Really? How, how do you know?" She said, "I was sitting with this person and mentioned the the show, and she said, oh yeah, I've seen a promo for that show. That show is so my life. From a yeah. thirty second promo, sure. people were already there, um, and." And it wasn't. It wasn't like people hanging out. It was stuff like the Calvin Klein. Ad. I mean, it was just who the who the characters were that were already coming through. But it was. The thing is, I, I mean, I was really glad to see that when I think it was New York Magazine did a recap of like it's been twenty years since Friends. It was not well reviewed. Mm-hmm. Nobody, nobody rated this show. There were a couple of people who liked it, but I remember when the initial round of reviews came out after the pilot, we were like, "Ooh, jeez!" Like it took a while. It took a while, and I remember the blackout as like when things when the game started to change, That's where people started to. And blackout, of course, was an episode we did not want to do that the network made us do That's because right. it was blackout night, which turned out not to be blackout nights. Yeah. yeah, and Seinfeld uh, refused. Everybody signed up. We said, "Oh, really? Is Seinfeld doing yeah. it?" I said, "Absolutely." Yeah. Seinfelt didn't do it. Uh, but uh, that's when people started to talk about it, and. Uh, you know, the ratings crept steadily northward and it did better and better. And I remember when we made the move from 8.30 to 9.30, I think it was that then that Warren Littlefield and all the executives from NBC came down and served the writing staff ice cream. I believe it was breakfast. breakfast. Was it breakfast? Warren made eggs. Was that what it was? Yes. I thought it was in, I thought. No, it was breakfast. Served breakfast. Okay, let's go with that. The executive, I, I don't we'll know. go with that because that's what it was. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to believe you. Let's go with Let's ask Warren. He'll remember. And Jamie, they were both like serving food. Yeah, but they were like wearing little aprons and hats. Yep. 
And I don't know what David and Marta needed to deal with in terms of <laughs> issues from the network, but we were entirely insulated from it. And the impression I got was that we were trusted, uh, and that we were that because of what Alexis said, we were our own harshest critics. We were given a lot of space by the network, um, which was extraordinary considering, as I said, the show did not open huge. Um, but I think because of James Burroughs and because of Marta and David and Kevin, we were given a certain amount of trust, and they kind of get stood and stayed out of our way, and they validated good choices, and they loved us up. I've never had network executives come down and serve us food. <laughs> it was extraordinary. I remember Warren Littlefield saying at one point, saying to, I was standing with them, uh, uh, David and Marty, and he said, this is the blueprint for the launch of a successful show, hmm. like what y'all have done with this first suite of episodes. And what do you what but at the you same time talking about? They, at the same time, yeah. Warren, who I love and have uh, produced several pilots with, but at the same time, they didn't believe that um, a show about six young people could get a huge audience. Right. And they kept pushing us to bring Added in an characters. older character. Yep. And specifically, there was Stan the Cop. Pat the Cop. Pat the Cop? Pat I always thought it was Stan the Cop. We had worked at a movie theater with a cop named Pat, and we thought it was really funny that he was Pat the Cop. Like because Pat it the sounded like a, a like Pat the Man. Like what you're supposed <laughs> to do. Yeah. That is a fucking terrible idea. <laughs> The old guy. We had several. We, okay. we attempted it several times. We cast a guy. Yeah, there was me and Max Wright. You know, Max Wright, boss at the coffee shop. And yeah. How, the, how the, late into the season did these notes come down? It was a we come in out of three or four episodes. Yeah. How he would come in. And like he remembered the coffee house from when it was oh, a diner. That's right. That's and right. it was more like, you know, like what's a cappuccino? Like it was those kind yeah. of jokes. Right. <laughs> it was they were so awful. So, so we just cut it every time. Yeah, but they, well yeah, they, they did not believe the show could cross over to older viewers. Sure. And then of course it did. Do you um, think the, yeah. the reason it was it didn't get the strong reviews or the reason it was maybe it wasn't slow to take off, but the reason, you know, maybe people were resistant is it was a different language. That's exactly right. It was a different language. And i got to be honest, if you go back and look at the pilot, the pilot opens in such an unorthodox way. There's no introduction. Yeah. Chandler is recounting a dream, and we're, like, into the show. Yeah. And I think it was difficult to sort of get with the show. Mm -hmm. you, who are these people? You're, What's the relationship? you're just parachuted in, and you're expected to sort of pick up on the fly. Yeah. Who are these people, and what is their relationship, and where am I? Again, it was also it's that low concept thing. It's yeah. like it's like you, you can't tell what to get on board with. You either sit in this conversation that's about to take ten right. years, or <laughs> yeah. or not. Like because that conversation started and it didn't stop for a lot of season. Like it just that's it. I think this pilot could be episode four, or could be season two, episode in, six. In, unlike, in a lot unlike, of ways, yes. Unlike a pilot. Now, when you start watching that pilot, you you aren't introduced to everyone and like I'm your brother. I'm right. <laughs> hey, I'm your sister. That's why <laughs> you got to listen to me. How long have we been working together? <laughs> there wasn't any of that crap exposition. It really gave the audience so much more credit, mm -hmm. which I, I've always found hilarious that the networks don't do because huge giant cable hits. Give the audience so much more credit. I mean, think about a show like Game of Thrones or whatever, where there's like 75 yeah. characters. Right. You don't know who they are or or what 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 it, what their motivation is, but you you learn it 
<laughs> and that's part of the fun is that you figure it out as you go along. And to some extent, the pilot of Friends was like that. I mean, certainly you got the information that you needed, but it didn't. It wasn't just spoon fed to you in the first three pages. Whereas if you develop a pilot now, um, I just helped a friend on a pilot, and it, you know, it was so funny and charming. And then she got network notes, and she sent me the draft after the network notes. And it was like all the lines that were like naturalistic had become so hit you over the head exposition. It, it, it was like, well, your child said this and your nephew said that. <laughs> like no one talks like that. You know, you could have figured out the relationships in context. Um, and I think people are just so they're so afraid yeah. of success uh, not happening immediately that they over-explain. They feel a need to over-explain. Well, it's a yeah. business that's poisoned by the big idea, right? So if like, if you don't have the big idea, if you can't get the big idea right in, in two or three words or whatever it is, right. and so yeah. the, these great things, you know, and whatever, if you have something that turns that upside down, like you're going to kill off most of your main characters in the first four episodes, right. you know, like, right. like game, talking about Game of Thrones, it's like, like the person you're rooting for is gone. By this reminds me, though, of um, at a certain point, we couldn't figure out, we were sitting in the room, we were like, I think it was second season, we were like, nobody has a really good reason to be in New York. And Greg Malin uh, said, we should move all the ac- all the characters. Where are we going to move them to? That wasn't second season, that was fourth season. Third, third or fourth? Came back. Oh, okay. We wanted to move them all to Minnesota. Right. Oh, okay. <laughs> we, went, we were really serious about it. Serious, and we plotted it out, and we wanted to move them there and leave them there for like, for like six, months. Oh, six episodes. We wanted to reshoot oh the title sequence of oh, Frozen A Frozen Fountain. fountain. Perfect. <laughs> That's great. We were quite serious about it. And we were quite serious about it. We plotted it out, and we pitched to Martin and David, and it was one of the few times they were like... I don't think we want to fuck with the franchise. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, you're probably right. But it was so funny. I think it was like it, it, it was sort of the rebellious twenty somethings. Right. How funny would it be if we right. just totally changed everything? <laughs> <laughs> like that wouldn't which is maybe a back syndication. <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, you see shows doing that. Mom did. Like they blew up the main set on Yeah, Mom. that's true. Yeah. I mean, it's a family, so it's a little different. Right. And it was, they moved across town. But, no, uh, but no one's in something like Archer. Yeah. Which, yeah, sure, that's right. Know, yeah, right. No one's invested in sales. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. That's it. Except there were a set that people were invested in. Yeah. Yes, that's true. Um, we should wrap up. Okay. But I do, and we'll kind of get into uh, future seasons when we do part two. Okay. Because cool. I'm curious about keeping that engine running. One thing I wanted to say before, yeah. and I, I don't know, it, 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 it's it's a long time since I said the A side of this, but what, what, we never stopped... We, we never stopped working really hard on an episode. So even after the, um, you know, the uh, initial rewrite, then the rewrite off the table read, then the rewrite off the first run through, then the rewrite off the, the network run through, even when the stories tracked and they had two interesting turns and the emotion was there and the jokes were there, you would still inevitably end up with one, sometimes two characters not having 
a handful of great jokes. So even then, even though I think a lot of other shows would go, hey, job well done, we are good to go, let's film it, you know what? We have to do a Monica pass, we have to do a Joey pass, we have to do a Chandler pass. Whoever what didn't have a major story, and we would again sit there until fucking two o'clock in the morning to find those three or four amazing jokes, and then it would be like we're done. Yeah, that's absolutely true. What uh, the only show that I can think of now that works in this way, and it's not even a show anymore, but the sequel does, is uh, Breaking Bad. Uh, right. Remember we talked to yeah. about that? Yeah, that's right. Like it was this very democratic room, and every piece was taken apart by the room, and everyone had to kind of agree on what was happening. Yeah, you know, and and like. It leads to quality. We saw this 20 years ago, and we see this yeah. two years ago. I mean, it's really... But, and, and that's another example of a, of a show, though, where the staff did a huge amount of work. Exactly. Vince had an unbelievably clear vision of what this yeah. show was. It sounds very right. similar. And was able to share that without beating people up along the way, yeah. right? right? So, that, so they could gain from it. Absolutely. So I want to just wrap up very quickly by asking you this. And we talked about, you know, adjusting your behavior in the room and adjusting your expectation in the room after Friends. Um, tell me a little bit about and, and Jeff and Jeff will start with you guys because you left Friends to run your own yeah. show. Yeah. Did you attempt to run it in the same way? I'm as, afraid so. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And what happened? Well, it was. Listen, I'm. It's. I'm, this will not surprise Jeff Strauss. A partners 1995 is like one of the best years I ever had. It was a terrific show. We had a great cast. We had a terrific premise. We were on the wrong network. But we turned out, you know, 20, uh, the 23, I think 20 of them were really great. That's we great. had a great year. We worked the staff so unbelievably hard. It was our first thing that we had created together, so we were even more, like, crazy perfectionistic. And, uh, you know, to be honest, um, uh we learned, we had to I think in terms of the arc of that season we had more to learn about what the machine would do and we were also I think we were not quite as trusted by the network as David and Marty were by NBC and Fox got anxious very very fast and kept urging us to kind of change up the formula in ways that were not good for the show and we and I will say on the in in relation to that I'm not sure that we handled that that well ourselves and so it it cranked up the pressure on all of that but yes very similarly um, and and episodes tended to continue to get better through the process Mm -hmm. but we were we were frequently driving off the lot having finished work while people were driving on with their morning coffee yeah and you know I gotta be honest I you know I was just talking about me for a moment I was so hysterically tenacious and unwilling to do anything I had ever seen before ever um, and so the result was sometimes episodes were great, but I, I would exhaust everybody around me, uh, including my partner, um, and a room full of really nice writers and network executives. I picked every single fight. I had no idea how to calibrate what the right fights to pick were. I, I completely tore the ear off one of the network executives because they had used their own version of our logo in a promo at 1130 at night. I mean, it was it was things like that that were just... Right. So, so unfortunately, I took some of the wrong lessons away from the experience um, and it took me a while I think to kind of be- mature a bit and be able to uh, understand that not you know as I have said to many a novice showrunner now even the greatest cabinet makers don't finish the back of the cabinet <laughs> we, had a, we, had a, we had a very interesting 
interesting kind of telling night about two-thirds of the way through that season. And I agree with Jeff, by the way, that, that the, just as an adjunct, that, that season, um, we figured out the show, mm-hmm. it got better um, for a show that, that made it one year and out. Um, the last handful of episodes of that show were not only as good as the pilot, but getting better and picking up momentum. It was really doing what a show should be doing. I, you, you guys, you're not dummies. You learned it. You could have kept that show. Yeah. Very easily kept that show on. And I, and that were, it could have made that choice easily. Um, but there was a point having ground our staff hard for a long, long time. And I think it was about... 35 or 40 days in a row um, where we got to a really, really exhausted point in one night. We were doing a very late night rewrite and fine, and we were looking at these people and we said, okay, look, we need to get through this, but if you guys don't think you can make it through the night, and we didn't really mean what we were saying, uh, then feel free to go. And nobody moved for about 30 seconds. And then one person said, you know what? I'm really beat. I just, I just have to go, and and stood up and said, "I'm like he said, I'm sorry. I'll be here in the morning." And walked out. And a split second later, one other person just like <laughs> ran out of his coat, just scampered out by. So it was, it was like, yeah, we like, okay, if we can go, we're out. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I listen. I for all as as hard a year as it was, I really did get spoiled. I got spoiled because we had the trust of a network. I got spoiled because it was this end to end, unbelievably lovely, brilliant writing staff, and I got spoiled because we were so incredibly validated Mm -hmm. by both the network and by the audience that showed up and turned this thing into this massive hit. And so it was a great year in a lot of ways, but it was a spoiler in a lot of ways. Yeah, we didn't know that wasn't the way it was always supposed to or going to be. Or that it was, or, and and you couldn't work harder than that. So we didn't think that it was going to be harder, yeah. <laughs> right? Or that it could be. I wish. But listen, as you worked harder in different ways. I yeah, well, really wish I could have stuck around. If I could have been, been sure. if I could have had both roads at the same time, because partners was great. But I, I really wish I could have stuck around with these guys to uh, to continue to ride that wave because it was an extraordinary show and it would have been fun to kind of stay in the game. Personal, per, like the, the success of it aside. Oh yeah, no, because of the people. Creatively. Yeah, because like those two so things alone. What, whatever that we've done fine it, financially and creatively right. and whatever. It sounds like having that room. I, yeah, it just it took me a while yeah. before I got a version. You know, Will and Grace. I got to, I yeah. got to have a version of that experience for a season of Will and Grace, but that was a number of years later before sure. I had a ride that was in any way similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was just and still a different just, animal. yeah totally different, um, totally different. Uh, and and the last time so how long were you guys each with the show and and what happened afterwards how was the uh, coming how was the, did you get the bends what happened afterwards yeah I, mean, I was the longest lasting original writer I stayed yeah. for six years um, and I would have stayed longer but frankly I I, I couldn't physically do it anymore really. Um, yeah, I mean, you were almost thirty. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I had been working eighty-hour weeks for for six years, sometimes more than eighty hours. Um, and also, you get to the point where you're like, because we did three stories an episode, twenty-four episodes a season. We were constantly throwing out stories. It wasn't the network; it was us. Um, so it was like, you know, I had gone through three hundred baby stories, and I'm like, I can't think of another fucking baby story. Um, but it was it was an amazing magical experience, and I 
you, you, we didn't realize how good we had it until we left. Mm -hmm. And I've worked on lots of other shows since then, many of which I've been proud of. But I, I did sort of get the bends because, like Jeff was saying, Jeff Greenstein, that it, I had been sort of taught to be insanely tenacious, to fight to the death for something to be unfamiliar. Like, if a story even had a hint of familiarity, it's like, we're not doing that, unless we're gonna, like with Paolo, acknowledge it in some way, circle it, and sort of um, subvert it in, in some way. So I was just insanely tenacious. I would argue and argue on subsequent shows, and I would just look around and be like, oh, no one else is doing that. <laughs> <laughs> this is weird. I mean, Maybe I should shut up. Um, and you just had to learn that that wasn't the way most shows operated. It wasn't that they were being lazy. It was just we, we were unbelievably nose to the grindstone and also kind of worked it was also that sort of over-caffeinated, over-tired feel, even though we didn't necessarily have those characters on Friends stay up all night in lots <laughs> of stories, that in your 20s, you, that is how you live. And yeah. so the stuff that you pitch at 2 o'clock in the morning when you're half asleep somehow sounds <laughs> right. <laughs> I think that's part of the reason we accidentally ended up there. Um, but yeah, there was just huge adjustments. And was there stuff, I mean, you guys have both run in your own rooms, was there stuff that you took from that experience that you tried to imprint on future jobs? I tried to, I, I had several show running jobs where I just kept people till two or three in the morning, mm -hmm. and it took years for me to learn that like, it just, it worked on that show yeah. for whatever reason, people don't want to do that. <laughs> Had the show become a huge hit, maybe they would be willing, I don't know, but just, they didn't want to do it, that wasn't what they were used right. to, and it was injurious to, to my relationship with the writers, and it took me a long time to learn that, like, you know what, I have to do it differently, 10 has to be a late night, mm -hmm. you know, unless, you know, really the story's exploded and the network's demanding something different. Yeah. Um, you can't do it. You can't make people stay till three o'clock in the morning just because you are not happy. Right. You just can't. Right. What about you? Well, you know, I made this conscious decision. I was there for five years, although one year I consulted on Veronica's Closet, which was another show that those guys did. But um, but I made a conscious decision. I really wanted to do something completely different after Friends. Like I tried to get a job on Oz. I swear to God, yeah, I was like, I was like, I'm moving to New York. I want to work for Tom Fontana. But I made a decision to try to do something different and to try to go where I would like learn something from the people that were in charge of it, if that makes sense. Because I had a kind of hilariously terrible uh, first pilot experience and and just felt like I wanted to change it up. And it was probably some kind of chip on my shoulder in some way, youthful chip that I wanted to get away from friends. But so in a strange way, it made it easier because I was learning a whole new language of working. Right. So And I wasn't the showrunner, so I was sort of accumulating information and drama is so different in terms of like the way the process works. So, but, um, 
but so I think it was a little different and um and then I sort of circled back to comedy um and I've been sort of in comedy ever since but more like network what they call comedy that's really drama <laughs> or you know cable you know that right. that area a little bit so um so but I I mean I I think that I definitely have carried many of the good things that I learned um from friends but it's 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 hard when the bar's high and when everybody cares enough to stay that's not to say that you shouldn't I mean I got burnt out too and you know I was incredibly and there are there are times when I think the room can be really valuable and others when I think it's valuable to let people go do their own work and sort of a combo platter but but working with Marta again now is sort of just a confirmation that the way it was happening was really special and kind of you know like it feels like I haven't been back to it in a lot of ways until now so and it must be I mean 20 years later 15 years later she must be a different person and it's a whole it's a very different kind of show but it it is and it isn't because we're doing the same the same process is happening you know um and the same questions are asked and I flash back all the time on like first season with Marta and kind of the way we would all laugh like crazy and so it's odd it's different yes for sure but it's also really similar in a great way interesting uh, alright before we wrap up we'll, we'll end as we always do with a twist um, let's uh, starting with you here um, tell us a, a favorite episode of Friends or uh, one that you worked on or one that you watched uh, that you are proud of or that you just think is hilarious and also tell us what you're watching on television right? oh okay well I mean I mentioned this in passing I, the, to me the one with the blackout is the episode that we made a lot of great episodes and um, Jeff and I were fortunate enough to write or co-write four of them that first mm-hmm. season and I loved them all um, but I feel like that for the blackout episode in spite of the fact that it came from this ridiculous assignment from the network was to me, the Friends process at its best, um, because uh, I think it was Astroff and Psychowitz who wrote that draft, right? Mm-hmm. But it was really collaborative. Like, everyone really worked that script really hard because it was this big turn in Ross and Rachel's relationship. And so I remember a lot of lovely group rewrites on that. One of the most unforgettable times that I had was was rewriting the Jill Goodacre in the ATM <laughs> vestibule um, with uh, some, it was a slightly smaller room because I feel like some people had been had gone home. It was four of us. But, but writing that whole internal monologue for Chandler about, you know, but to me, gum is perfection. I loathe myself. Um, so not only was it an extraordinarily good episode of TV, but I remember the process being great, that it was a lot of hard work to make something that was that finely calibrated and that well polished. Um, and that was to me when the show took a, a quantum jump uh, in uh, both comedically and dramatically in terms of what it was capable of doing. Mm-hmm. So that's the one that really stuck out for me. What am I watching? What are you watching? What am I watching? Um, golly, what am I? I went back and rewatched the entire run of Friday Night Lights, uh, which which I just finished watching last night, uh, which was very edifying, and I encourage you, if you haven't seen it lately, do that again. The other thing I'm rewatching uh, is The Thick of It. Uh, which you know I completely revere. So am I watching anything new? I'm not watching anything new right now. I kind of am in search of a show. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't have anything current to recommend. Right. Those um, are good answers. Yeah, but those are the two things that I've been watching. Uh, Alexa, a Friends episode? 
Of, of the entire run? The or? entire run, sure. Oh, well. Anything that stand out, again, either from yeah. being there or just from enjoying it. I, I will never forget the sound of the audience in the prom video when that was, I mean, in you know, that was just one of the more thrilling things in my life ever to have heard. Like, so it's hard for me to separate that experience, you know, from the episode itself, but, um, that was very special. Yeah. And are you watching television right now? Are you watching anything interesting? I'm, I feel terrible. I, I enjoy television. I just haven't been watching it a whole lot. I, I like that show where they drop off people who are naked and they have to like forge like, you know, like huts and things and stay alive. Uh, Jeff, what, uh, is there a Friends episode that, that comes to mind? Um, you know, it, it is, it is hard to pick out. I mean, uh, an individual. I've got to watch the entire series over and over again. I have three teenage children who found friends in sequence uh, <laughs> by meeting one of them, then the other one, then the other one. So we've just finished watching the entire run wow. uh, for, the uh, for the third time in about five years. Um, That's funny. But, but I, I'm I want to point just to a moment, and it's in the same episode that Jeff singled out, though there were lots of things in, in the first season. Um, I, I recently rewatched the Blackout episode again, and uh, the, the moment in that episode uh, where Ross and Rachel are alone and the cat jumps on, on Ross, <laughs> um, and and it, it just brought back one of my favorite production memories, which was was uh, Jimmy Burroughs oh, saying yeah. to Schwimmer, um, be prepared to keep that going for a long time, that wrestling with the cat, because I'm not going to say cut until <laughs> the audience stops laughing. Oh it's one of the biggest laughs That's I've ever great. heard. On and, <clears throat> and, uh, and he did. And, and, <laughs> the, and the length of the laugh is... Is four times the length of what's <laughs> what was on on TV, but funny. but just even knowing that that was possible, so, so yeah, that, that, I and, totally and, agree. And, and, it, and and in a way, for me, it was the pinnacle of that process that Jeff was describing, which was uh, Jeff and Mike had done a superb job with the first draft, but the network demands were super super high. We wound up kind of splitting up pieces and doing some work on that, and really grinding that episode through the the whole process where everybody got their fingers into it. Um, and the process of doing that episode was really, um, really special, uh, I thought. Yeah. Um, and, and what am I watching now on, on television? Um, uh, Fargo. Oh, neat. Uh, for the second time. Second nice. uh, I just... <laughs> Fascinated by it. Really, really love yeah. that work. Great, great, great job. I, I love that show too. Yeah, that was so good. Uh, Adam, let's let's ask what you're what you're watching now first. Down Abbey. Oh, I watch that too every night. <laughs> I guess I do watch TV. Yeah. <laughs> um, I still have Down Abbey. Still good. Can't believe Mr. Bates is in trouble again. <laughs> um, wait, wait! I didn't see it. <laughs> um, I. About six months ago was, I guess, the last person on the face of the earth to watch Breaking Bad. I watched it all uh, in about a month. And my God, that is just the greatest thing I have ever seen. Uh, I'm also currently re-watching The West Wing with my wife, who's British, who missed it. Um, And again, that's another, and also I'm working with Alison Janney on Mom, so it's it's extra fun to watch. 
And let's see. The weird thing is that because I've been working in comedy so long, I tend to watch much more drama. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's because I know how the sausage is made. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. And I can guess usually, like they're either going to do this or that. Okay, they're doing that. That means, oh, they're going to call that back. Oh, they're and so it's hard for me to, it, it's almost like a, a doctor watching surgery or something. I, I just, I know where the scalpel's going to go. <laughs> um, in, in terms of a favorite episode, it's so hard to choose. There's so many moments. I think I'll never forget the prom video that Alexa wrote. Um, where Rachel finds out how long Ross has had feelings for her. Mm-hmm. Um, the one that just pops into my head is one that my old partner Ira wrote, the one where no one's ready, because it was one where I think my favorite episodes were where we really didn't have guest characters, and it was just the six of them in the home base sets, and especially those couple of real-time ones we did, there was a story in that in that episode where Joey and Chandler fight over the good chair in Monica's apartment, and that had been a, a real-life argument that Greg Malin and I had been having, which was basically... We would be sitting in the room around the table, and you would be in your seat. And I would go to the bathroom, and I would come back, and Greg would be in my chair. And I would be like, you're in my chair. And he's like, it's not your chair. They're all our chairs. And I was like, yeah, but if I was sitting there, and he's like, well, you didn't, you didn't save it. Like, why would it still be your chair? And I said, I think that there's an unspoken agreement amongst civil human beings (laughs) that if you're sitting in a chair in a meeting and you go to the bathroom that when you come back that chair should be yours now if you go to a run through and there's like a break and everybody gets up at that point when you come back all the chairs are in play (laughs) and he disagreed with me I I think he disagreed with me just to piss me off this is something I'd love to ask him and I don't know if he'll ever I think he may have started that way but I bet he dug in because he got like interested in (laughs) discourse yeah and you know that was just one of those things that we I wasn't doing a bit he might have started doing a bit but I think you're right he did at some point dig in and take the opposing point of view almost like in a debate club and it really became this thing that went on for months and months and then we were looking for what's a story that could happen just in Monica's apartment that isn't gonna you know that could happen in real time along with the other two stories in that episode, and it was like, oh, what about that thing that Adam and Greg are always arguing about? <laughs> Perfect. That's really That's great. great. Uh, and made it for an absolutely terrific memorable one. So thank you guys so much for doing oh, that. Thank, thank you. Super fun. It's instructive and uh, I hope fun for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope you'll come to part two. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. If will have me. <laughs> <laughs> Now leaving Nerdist.com.